You may be seated. I was just <clears throat> sitting listening to y'all talk. I told a couple of kids this morning, I said, you can sit up here with me. It's the best seat in the house. You get to see all of God's people sometimes when they're falling asleep. But I was thinking as I was hearing us sing that uh, we often say at Zion that we are historically rooted but speaking God's timeless truths into our present experience, into the present culture. And I was thinking as we were singing that we, we have sung by the time we're done today songs that were written in the 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries because God's worth, word never changes and the gospel is good news for all generations. Well, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 8 is where we're going to camp out today. We're going to look at uh, 5. Um, we're going to start by reading chapter 5, 1 through 8. But then we're going to camp out on verse, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 8. That can be a little confusing. If you're new to the Bible, um, maybe new to Christianity, just checking us out, we've got the text for you on page 10 of your worship guide. This is... God's word. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and Seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumbling, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Would you join with me as we pray and ask God's blessing on his word preached? Let's pray together. From the throne of God, 
we pray with the power of thunder and lightning, you would come speak to us, Lord Jesus. By your spirit that penetrates hearts, can break into the hardest of them, make them soft and come alive. We pray, come do your work. Let us not leave here unchanged by your word. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen. Well, one of the things that God often does um, for his people is he gives us little breaks in intensity. He does this in the Christian life, little oasises in the journey. The Christian life is, is often described like Exodus. It's passing through the wilderness, times of intensity and, and safety because God is there, but also of moments, just moments of rest. And he's done this for us in the book of Revelation. Oftentimes, we've called these our interludes, these times when we kind of get to catch our breath from the intensity of what's going on. A little time when we get a glimpse into what is going on into heaven. So over the next couple of weeks, what I want to do is circle back around to a couple of the themes in the book of Revelation that we've had to skip over. And my goal is for these to be interludes before we press on towards the end of July and early August to finish the book of Revelation. A chance for us to catch our breath because the last three chapters of the book of Revelation have been quite intense. And so this is what we're going to do this week. We're going to look at the role of prayer in the book of Revelation. And then we're going to look next week at the multi-ethnic community. Two themes that we had to, for time's sake, skip over. That God is gathering for himself a people who pray. And he moves his hand. And he's gathering those people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So our goal for today is not so much to give us a to-do list on prayer or a how-to list on prayer, but a vision for prayer. Because I would guess that most of us would find that it is either too confusing or too difficult to pray. And so what I want to give us is what John does entirely in the book of Revelation. Not tell us what we need to do, but give us a vision for what God is doing in the world. And so if you're a note taker, three points. A vision for prayer. Secondly, God's vision, what he sees when we pray. And then third, a vision for what God does when we pray. So a vision for prayer. We intuitively, I think all of us intuitively know that change needs to happen. When you look at our lives, there's no part of our lives that doesn't need change. There's no part of this world that doesn't need change. We intuitively built into us is a sense that everything is broken and therefore everything needs to be changed. But I'm going to suggest this, that the healthiest person, the person who is most aware, the healthiest person knows that change needs to happen through petition. Here's what I mean by that. By petition, we know that someone else has to do the work to change because we don't have it in us. Someone else has to do the work that we need to go outside of ourselves because the problems that we are facing, whether it's in our own hearts, in our own lives, or in the world around us, is just simply too big for the small hands that we have, that we're too weak. 
And so we need to go outside of ourselves, asking someone else to come work. That's the nature of petition. And in this way, prayer is, as Ols Howesby says, if you're not familiar with his book on prayer, ask me about it. It's the best book on prayer that you will ever read. Oftentimes, books on prayer make you want to stop praying. Halsby makes you want to start praying. He says this about prayer. He says, prayer is the breath of the soul. It just kind of comes out. We don't find it that easy, and I think it's because we don't have this vision for prayer. He says, prayer is the breath of the soul, the organ by which we receive Christ into our parched and withered hearts. To pray is nothing more involved than to just let Jesus into our needs. Prayer has been ordained only for the helpless. It is the last resort of the helpless. Indeed, the very last way out. We try everything before we finally resort to prayer. In prayer, helplessness is inseparable. Only those who are helpless can truly pray. That's why it's the breath of the soul. It's the crying out. God, I, I can't. I'm just, I just can't. What's before me is too big. Maybe that's at its most basic prayer, the, the kind of prayer we never grow out of. I can't. I need you because you can. You never really kind of grow away from that prayer. And that's why prayer is helplessness. We don't pray until we're truly helpless. But what Revelation gives us is a context for our helplessness when we pray, because what we're being reminded of in these two chapters is the kind of access that those who are in Christ have to the throne of heaven. Look, when we pray, our Father who are in heaven, we're not saying you're so distant and remote from us. You're in heaven in this other sphere we're detached from. We're not so much saying you're up there, we're down here. What we're saying when we pray is that heaven is the place of your reign where you sit enthroned from which all of your power comes out into the world, heaven is not so much in this sense about where God is located, but where the reign of God is expressed. And that's why we pray, come down. We want to see on earth as it is in heaven. That links us back to Revelation 4 and 5, where John sees a vision of a throne in heaven in the Lamb of God, looking as if it was slain, but standing there, reigning. John is getting a vision into the central part where the universe is governed, where nations rise and fall, where plagues are unleashed and stopped at God's command. Literally nothing can stop the God who orders all things. And that's what's happening in Revelation 8, 4. And we saw it in 5 at the very end of our passage there. That the prayers of the saints, those who are the ones who belong to Jesus, who have had their 
their sin washed away by his blood. The saints are the ones who have their acts together. Their saints are the ones who are united to the only one who can wash away sins. We'll see in a second. And the prayers of the saints, see this in 8.4, rose up before God as he sits on his throne, reigning over all things. There's this old picture of JFK sitting at the Resolute Desk in the White House. It's the most powerful office in the world at the time. The president is sitting there, working away, running the country, ordering the affairs of... They're there in the midst of the Oval Office. And under his desk is JFK Jr. playing in a little cubby. He has access because it's his father who's at the desk. The throne of God throughout the book of Revelation is the place where the judgment of God comes forth into the world to deal with real evil that must be dealt with. But the saints have a different experience before the throne. They are sheltered under the throne. They sit under the throne, protected and provided for by the one who sits on the throne. And that is because Jesus has made the throne of judgment, the throne of grace for those who are washed by his blood. The writer of Hebrews makes this point about the sufficiency of Jesus and how it changes our experience before the throne of the God who reigns over all things. And he says, look, Jesus is your great high priest. He's your great high priest, the all-sufficient one, the only one that you need because he's been chosen by God. He's offered himself as a sacrifice for your sins and as a result of his victory over death and satisfying God's wrath, he's passed through the heavens. And then he draws this conclusion. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. Where else would you go when you're helpless than the throne of the God who reigns over all things, who's who's clothed with light and simply commands that things happen and they they happen. And confidence, I've got confidence to, to go there. I don't have to be afraid because the judgment of God has been poured out on the Lamb of God. And if we go backwards in Revelation just a little bit in chapter 7, If you've got your Bibles, just a little bit, just a few verses backwards. This is the scene that we're given, the description of those of God's people who have that kind of access to God's throne. Then one of the elders says, he looks at him, he says, John, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come from? I said, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Life after the fall, broken as we are, these are the ones. They've come out of the brokenness of the world. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. 
They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun will shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now back to 8.4. When the Christian prays, this is what you have to envision. It has to be part of your vision. I'm not just, I, I, I'm not just offering thoughts and dreams out into the ether, hoping that it'll make a difference in the world. I am approaching the throne of grace, the places of flashing and lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. Before the throne where around God is the Seven torches that are burning with fire and the spirits of God are there. And before the throne, sea of glass as crystal. That's where I'm going when I pray. It's where I'm bringing my helplessness. God, I can't. You can. I need you to. And what I find there is a father who delights to hear his children ask for help. Secondly, a vision from God. What does he see when we pray? Verse 1 of chapter 8. Then when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now some have interpreted the silence as simply a pause in history, a break in time. Some have interpreted as the silence that comes before God comes in judgment. But let me suggest that rather that the, the break in the sequence, the silence, is because God is giving attention to the prayers of His people. The visions were given of heaven. They're quite loud. Thousands and thousands of angels singing Peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, a multitude no one could number singing so loudly that the thresholds of the temple are, are shaking, playing on their harps, a very loud instrument. And now, as the prayers of the people of God, the saints are rising up to them. This is what he says. Quiet. My people are talking. I want to hear what they have to say. Quiet down. Something similar happens in John chapter 11. Lazarus has died. And Jesus is praying. He's going to raise him from the dead. But before he does, this is what he says. I thank you, Father, that you have always heard me. I know that you always always hear me. And you see what's happened to those who have been washed in the robes, the dirty, filthy garments of sin, have been washed clean and white by the blood of the Lamb. Those words become your reality. I know you always hear me. There are times for the Christian when it feels like God is not listening. It just seems like sometimes 
You're not sure why he seems so far away. Maybe it's you think, I'm just not worth listening to. I'm too small and insignificant. Maybe it's because I have done so much awful things that God's just done with me. Maybe it's, it's just you go through these times of, of dryness when walking with Jesus. And you think, what is wrong? God doesn't hear me anymore. And you see, one of the things that God is saying is this. It doesn't matter in that moment what you think or feel. There is a reality that is immutable, unchangeable, and it's rooted in the finished work of Christ. And because it's rooted in his finished work, it is this. It doesn't matter if you feel like I'm not hearing you. I cannot but hear the prayers of my saints when they're uttered. Because they're united to my son. But the image gets richer, even richer than that. Actually, maybe better to say sweeter. Verse 3. And another angel came. So God quiets down. My people are talking. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer like a little bowl. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose up before God from the hand of the angel. Incense is created by burning sweet-smelling things. In ancient Israel, there's actually an altar that sat before the Holy of Holies, and the smoke went in. It's a pleasant perfume that's burnt. And what it functions is, is to make things smell sweeter by completely engulfing it. And you see what's going on is the angel was offering incense with the prayers of the saints because here's the reality. None of us prayed, has ever prayed or ever will pray with utterly pure heart or selfless motives. It's always mixed up with all kinds of selfish dreams and ambitions. In our most helpless state, we tend to think again, God only hears me when I perform. And you begin to think, I'm not praying right God's not listening. I need to improve my prayers. God's not going to listen. I must not have done enough. God's not listening. I need to do more good works. God, I promise if you hear me this time, I will obey from now on. It is not our job to sweeten our prayers. That's the work of Jesus. You see, even his death on the cross perfumes our prayers. It does not matter. Our prayers may come from the rod of hearts mixed with sinful motives. Hearts that have not prayed in decades. Who have been in complete and utter rebellion against God. Running away from him. When they are joined to Christ, he presents even our prayers as holy and blameless. God gives the angel the incense to sweeten the prayers of the saints as it comes before his altar. Our prayers are sweet to him 
He silences heaven. He says, you hear that? Oh, that's the sweetest thing I've smelt all day. Because they're perfumed with the finished work of Jesus. Realtors use an old trick to make you want to buy a house. They bake cookies. Because, oh, then it smells so sweet, you feel like you're coming home. And it works. That's why they do it. How much sweeter then when the prayers of God's people are gulfed with the incense of the work of Christ rise up and he's like, oh, that's the best thing I've heard today. That's the sweetest thing that I could smell. That's what God sees when his people pray. Now a vision for what God does when we pray. Look, Jesus promised his people this. <laughs> this is the kind of access that you have to the throne of God. This is what happens. This is how God experiences when you pray. Therefore, you can actually affect tremendous change in the world. Matthew 17, 20. For I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will happen. Nothing is Impossible for you. Now that sounds like hyperbole and we want to dismiss it, but look at chapter 8. What happens? Chapter 8 is the beginning of the angels blowing the seven trumpets. It's the end. This is the end of the seventh seal. Remember we said the seals are the plodding forward of history and only Jesus is worthy enough to move God's plan forward in the world. The seventh seal is open. He sees what's going on. You remember back in Revelation chapter 6, after the fifth seal had been opened, we see under the altar of God, those who have been slain by the word of God, and they're asking a question. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell? That's their prayer. And John sees here is God's response to their prayers and to the prayers that are ascending up. God is moving his hand. Verse 5, then. As a result of the prayers of the saints, he's quieted heaven. They've rose up, sweetened with incense. Then, verse 5, as a result, the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And then, then this, the angels start to blow the seven trumpets. And God unleashes his cleansing judgment on the world. Why? Because his people prayed. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says. He says, this vision, this one that we're looking at here, this vision convinces the Christian of the potencies of prayer. Prayer is an access to an environment in which God is the pivotal center of action. The saints, as a result, turn their backs on the power centers of Canaan, Assyria, Greece, and Rome and give themselves to the person and as a result the person of God and as a result the, the intensities increase 
God's going to do something. And as a result, intimacy with God increases. I'm helpless. He can do this. It's like a little child. I mean, how many of you, when your little children come to you and they're just really broken by something, and you cherish that moment that they ask for help because intimacy bonds are deepened in that moment. But he goes on. These ones who turn their back on the places of power in this world and turn their face towards the one who can and does help, they are the ones that change the world. This is the nature of the upside-down kingdom, isn't it? The feeble utterances of the people of Jesus are what change the course of history. It's not the politician to access the courts of the world or the pocketbooks of the rich of the world. It's not the Instagram influencer with millions of followers who changed the world. It's not the king of Saudi Arabia who right now is persecuting more Christians in his kingdom than almost any other ruler on the face of this earth. Or Xi Jinping of China that's causing everyone across the face of the earth wonder How do we brace ourselves against this coming empire? These may influence the world just a bit. But it's the people of Jesus, the little people. You see, when John's writing this, Christians had no power, no status, no voice, no vote. They were pushed off to the fringe of society. They were in the eyes of the Roman kingdom completely powerless and utterly insignificant. But in the throne of God, where the real power resides, their prayers rose up, became sweet, and God moved his hand. Now, that should affect us. We should pray towards the strongholds of sin in our lives. Whatever it is that you're like, I can't, I've tried everything, can't break this. God's answer is, of course you can't. Your hands are too small. You're utterly helpless against the power of sin in your own life. But he moves his hands. Have you noticed how in our time in Revelation, how anticlimactic most of the conflicts are? We spend a lot of time building up, God giving us a vision through John's vision of of great conflict in the world. The dragons eating He's ready to eat the seed of the woman as it comes forth into the world. And then just, boop, he's taken up into heaven. Because there is no power, not sin or Satan, or a match for the sovereign power of God our Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Nothing can stand in his way. And this should force us. To pray in this way. Jesus calls it impudent prayer. Impudent simply means no respecter of office. It's it's like a little child who just keeps asking and asking and asking and asking for what they want until you give it to them. And it's impudent, Jesus says, because you're asking the king of creation, but not with pomp and circumstance or formality, you just keep asking until he moves his hand. And he'll move his hand. And history will be changed. 
Some of you are familiar with this tremendous quote by John Piper in his book on missions, worldwide advance of the gospel. His chapter on prayer, he says, look, life is like war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. It's never less than that. Our weakness is prayer in prayer it owes largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is like a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. And I don't know if he got that from this vision, but that is exactly what happens. The, the saints pray. They're on the ground. They're praying. The forces of evil and their own sin are overwhelming them. God, how long? Come do something. And he brings the air power, puts the fire in the sensor, the angel unleashes it on the world. We gather every Sunday night as a church family to pray. It's not your typical prayer meeting. You've been to those typical prayer meetings. You start to talk more about prayer than you actually pray. Or you can begin taking prayer requests for 25 minutes and then pray for like three. And those prayer requests usually take the form of, I need you to pray for my aunt's next door neighbor's left big toe. She stubbed it on the way to the bathroom. That's not what we do. We are praying this. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. I frequently say to this group that gathers that I call it the nuclear reactor of Zion. Because we're praying for our missionaries. We're praying for ministry initiatives at Zion. We're praying for areas of brokenness in our own lives and the lives of others. Praying for conversions. We are dwelling before the throne of God together. And let me tell you, if God does anything, if he ever moves at Zion, it is because the fuel rods from this group have been dropped into the reactor of God's power and grace. And he has exploded in our city. God moves his hand. That is not a platitude. That is the reality. In 1989, Christians in East Germany began gathering nightly for prayer at a large Lutheran church. Some of you remember the year. Christians from around the city joined in and they prayed fervently for God to do something about the terrible communist regime that was ruining their country. Suppressing people, creating widespread poverty consolidating power into the hands of a few evil men was devastating people's lives. Well, the, the authorities learned of the meeting and they, they became quite alarmed. And so despite the official dogma of East Germany that there is no God, they got nervous when the Christians started talking to God about them. And so finally the army was called in. But the, the soldiers refused to fire on their own people, some of whom were family members and friends. The day after the troops disobeyed the order to file on the Christians, this is what happened. The wall fell in East Germany. 
It wasn't the it wasn't the guns in the street. It wasn't the tanks blowing through. It wasn't the massive amount of diplomacy that had been going on or the levers of politics that had been pulled. It is because they knelt. God heard, smelled something sweet and unleashed his hands. Now when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are asking with expectation for mountains to be moved. Not with great plans or great efforts, but with a simple petition to the God who reigns. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table, it is with this expectation that in these ordinary elements, you will do an extraordinary work of grace because your spirit is present here pointing us to Jesus the lamb slain for our sins. And so feed us and nourish us on your grace, for we are helpless until you come to our rescue. And so with confidence, knowing that you are a God who keeps his promises, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.